Hey everybody, it's Nick, and if you've seen the title of today's episode, you already know what we're going to talk about. This is an episode that is coming out as we try to grapple with systemic racism and white supremacy, and specifically, what can we do about it? And that we is important, because I'm mixed, but obviously present as a white guy, and that has its own stuff going around it. But the we in this episode largely is the we of white people. So we thought about it and we, you know, we can't speak to anyone else's experiences, but in terms of what it means to be helpful right now, this is a show that talks about we and you, and we are talking about white people. And we know we have listeners all around the world. We've met and we've talked with you. And this is just something that we had to sort of go into and say, what would be helpful? What could be specific and could perhaps just do a small thing for good. So that's what we're doing today. If um, you're a person of color, please stick around. Please let us know how we can help. Please engage with us. You know, we're just trying to do something that we hope will do something positive. And if you're a white person and you listen to the show, we are talking to you and we hope it helps. So thanks. Organisms inhabit nearly every environment on Earth. From hydrothermal vents deep in the ocean to the glaciers and tundra of the Arctic. From tiny viruses to blue whales weighing 200 tons to fungi that spread for hundreds of hectares underground, the diversity and extent of organisms on Earth is wondrous. We can better understand an organism when we see it as a system, a complex system that is shaped by and in turn shapes its environment. Each environment offers both resources and constraints that shape the appearance of the organism that inhabit it and the strategies these organisms use to survive and reproduce. I now understand racism as a system, as a deeply embedded system, a system that our country was founded on and that all our institutions were created out of. And every institution reinforces this system. And it's a system of unequal power. That is Dr. Robin D'Angelo, author and anti-racist educator, in a video entitled Deconstructing White Privilege. And if you are a white person listening to this, I would highly recommend her most recent book, White Fragility, Why It's So Hard for White People to Talk About Racism. As a system, racism behaves much like an organism. It lives and breathes. It is a life form. It works to maintain optimal function, homeostasis. It adapts and has the ability to change in response to its environment. It's committed to its own growth, and it has both the ability and a mandate to reproduce. And this particular organism, white supremacy, has been living, breathing, growing, and reproducing for over 400 years. Now, the most basic instinct of an organism is self-preservation. It's a survival instinct. Essentially, the process of an organism preventing itself from being harmed or killed. 
Now, there are lots of ways that white supremacy perseveres. One of them is it convinces people that it does not exist in the fabric of our society as it truly does. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. Another is it finds ways to silence anyone who might recognize it from talking about it, making it taboo, scary, rude, risky, inappropriate to talk about racism. The first rule of Fight Club is you do not talk about Fight Club. The second rule of Fight Club is you do not talk about Fight Club. As just one example of how this plays out, since we decided to do this episode, I've written 46 pages of typed and handwritten thoughts, notes, and drafts. Now, this is way more than we would usually do for any one of our shows. The entirety of my part in this show is a little bit over three pages, and I've written over 46 pages. Nick and I talked over and over and over again. I wrote and I rewrote. I so concerned that I would do it wrong so worried about what is the right way to have this conversation. I mean, look, let's just call it out. I am a white dude who grew up in the suburbs of Toronto, Canada. I'm only now beginning to really understand white supremacy and white privilege, which means that I have a lot of work to do. And since I'm near the beginning of this journey, I've spent so much time writing and rewriting these words because I'm afraid that I might unintentionally offend or hurt people that I care about. And then I will be judged, judged by you and be seen as a bad person or a racist. And it's precisely that fear that keeps us all quiet. And so today we're going to fight back against one of racism's strongest weapons, silence. My psychosocial development was inculcated in the water of white supremacy. That is what I call this system. I don't mean the KKK. I mean a system in which whiteness and white people are central and seen as inherently superior than to people of color. My personality was formed in that water. My worldview was formed in that water. I didn't choose it. It isn't my fault. I'm not racked with guilt about it but I am responsible for changing it because the default of our society is the reproduction of racism. It's built into every system and every institution. And if we just live our lives and carry on in the most comfortable ways for us, we will necessarily reproduce it. There is no neutral space. Inaction is a form of action. So we are here to talk about it. And I'm sure we'll mess it up, but our goal is to point ourselves and some of our listeners in the direction of effective action. Welcome to Where There's Smoke, the show where we explore self-development through the lens of current events, pop culture, and experience. This week, as the world is reckoning with race and equality after the murder of George Floyd, we try to understand what an ally is and what it isn't. This includes a conversation with sociologist and anti-racism educator Holiday Phillips. My name is Brett Gaida. And I'm Nick Jaworski. Let's start the show. (music) 
Recently, I watched Just Mercy. The 2019 movie tells the true story of Walter McMillan, who in 1988 was wrongfully convicted of murder and put on death row in Monroeville, Alabama. It is also the story of a young defense attorney named Brian Stevenson, who would go on to found the Equal Justice Initiative. Now, there are several moments in the film where I had this visceral reaction, where I felt this tension of anger inside of me, similar to reactions I've had in the past watching When They See Us, If Beale Street Could Talk, Selma, Fruitvale Station. I watch these movies, these stories of hate and injustice and racism, and there's moments where my blood starts to boil. I think this can't happen. This is wrong. I recall just seven months ago having a similar feeling. I was angry, having witnessed an injustice, and I wanted there to be some sort of retribution for the people who inflicted it, some sort of justice for the person wronged. And so I immediately got into action. I mean, within 24 hours, I had made a phone call to the organization these people worked for. I spent 90 minutes on the phone with them, and I was ultimately told that they would take no responsibility and there would be no restitution. Wow, that got me really angry. And so now I was outraged. I immediately pulled out my computer. I typed a full-page email demanding justice. That evening, I got an email response that felt about as stock as they come, telling me that they'd, quote-unquote, passed along my feedback and stating their sincerest apologies. I wrote again. I was like, really? Is this the entirety of your response? I mean, I reiterated to them that the whole situation was outrageous and offensive, immoral, I said, ending with, please address this, stating that I didn't need their apology for someone else's actions, but I did need them to make it right. I sent another email. I made more phone calls, finally speaking to someone in charge, whatever that means, and I was told by them that they considered the situation resolved. And ultimately, it ended just like it started. They took no responsibility. There would be no restitution. And I was mad. But I had fought. Multiple emails, hours on the phone, blood, sweat, tears, passion. But here's the thing. All that I went through, what I just described to you, that was not because someone like Walter McMillan was wrongly arrested and convicted by a racist system. It was not for George Floyd or Breonna Taylor or Ahmed Arbery or Oscar Grant or Trayvon Martin or Eric Gartner. No. In the case I just described, it was for me. It was my response to a perceived rude and unprofessional interaction I had had with two gate attendants at an airport. That was the grave injustice. And man, it, <laughs> it just really hit me the other day. After watching Just Mercy, and I don't know why this time, but I thought of the combined hours and days I have spent sending emails on phone calls, waiting on hold, waiting in line, fighting to right some perceived wrong. You know, I just was talking about this the other day after sort of realizing this and writing this script. I was sharing the story with a couple of friends and my wife was sitting next to me. 
And I mean, she rolled her eyes because she's heard me do this. She's been in the room when I've been on the phone with someone fighting for some injustice, quote unquote. I did a scroll through emails, Twitter, and memory. And here is a list of just a few of the injustices that I have fought for in just the past couple of years. The TV screen on my flight didn't work. A meal service box arrived a day late. The treadmill we bought doesn't sync with my phone like I thought it would. A package I ordered arrived two days later when the delivery window sighted. The water in my hotel room wasn't replenished. And the next day, the maids didn't clean the room. A company charged my credit card for a monthly subscription because I forgot to cancel it, and then I was angry at them for having an auto charge in the first place. A parking ticket I didn't agree with. A bank charge that seemed ludicrous. <laughs> Look, I realize that I have fought harder for each one of those things than I have ever fought for the human rights of the black community in North America. I want to stand here right now and defend myself, but I can't argue with the evidence. I see these movies, I see these injustices, my blood boils, and then I do nothing. And I ask myself, what would my reaction, my actions have been if what happened to George Floyd or Tamir Rice or Breonna Taylor had happened to my wife, my brother, my son. What would I do? Because I am pretty sure I would move heaven and earth for justice in any one of those cases. Now, Brett, you're obviously not the only person who has failed to do what needs to be done. You know, I have my own unique relationship with this. I have my own unique background. I'm mixed. I'm the child of a white man and a black woman. But clearly, if you've seen me, I'm treated by the world as a white person. But it seems like I'd be able to rally and do the work, right? Well, back in 2014, a white police officer shot and killed Michael Brown, an unarmed black 18-year-old. Ferguson is where the Black Lives Matter movement began. It was at the start of my little podcasting career, back when it was just a dream, and I drove to Ferguson in the immediate days after the killing to witness the protests. I spoke to dozens of black people, some white people. I even interviewed the mayor of Ferguson the night after rubber bullets were shot at protesters. Obviously, you're the you're the mayor of the most covered news I'm, story I'm in the world. I'm glad you put right it that now. way. <laughs> it is. As so, opposed to the most infamous city in America or but, something like that. So, so what happens next? But of all those conversations, I'll never forget one that I had with three black women who had gathered at the exact spot that Michael Brown was gunned down. Two of them had traveled from outside of St. Louis, across the state, to come to Ferguson just to pay their respects and participate in the protests. But can I ask you why? Why was it so important to drive that far to come here for you? This has been tearing me up. I'm sorry. This is tearing me up all week. This is my hometown. 
I have friends and family that live in this area. And I mean, this isn't an isolated incident. This is not just happening here. It's happening everywhere. And I have a 12-year-old son. So all I keep thinking is if you don't have to follow due process and protocol and, this, and people keep well, getting off, thanks. my child is not safe. Mm -hmm. So this isn't even just about him. This is about my kids. This is about my family's kids, my friends' kids. Like something has to change, or better yet, I mean, it's a free for all. We might as well tell our kids to walk around strapped. Why not? Why not? Now I don't need to tell you how visceral and heartbreaking that is. It's all right there for you to witness and experience. But since that day, I can't really point to anything that I've done to help the black community which is my literal, actual family. And sure, I haven't been actively pro-racist in any way that I can think of, but I definitely haven't walked the walk of anti-racist. And if you're not part of the solution, then you're definitely part of the problem. Okay, now speaking of problems, I want to paint a picture of something that I've been trying to understand and label for like a decade. Back when I was a music teacher, I was part of a movement of educators who believed that it was time to just shake everything up. While band, choir, and orchestra is nice, in order to stay relevant and give voice to our students' lived experiences, a lot of us wanted to start offering things like pop and hip-hop methods, film scoring, and recording techniques. A lot of people called this progressive music education. So I would go present at conferences and people would get super pumped about progressive music ed and they would wait around and want to talk to me after each session and they would say things like, yeah, 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 let's do it. I'm so ready for this, Nick. But over time, after meetings and emails and phone calls, it turned out that a lot of those people weren't actually on the same page as me. There was always some reason why we couldn't argue for investment in hip hop methods or pop songwriting. They would say things like, well, kids, like, this is nice, but they have to learn how to read music, right? And then it dawned on me. These people weren't actually on my team. They just wanted to feel like they were on my team. And in the end, it was way worse to have someone pretend to agree with me than it would be if they could just admit that they didn't want change. That way, we wouldn't waste so much time and so much energy running in circles, and then they wouldn't go out into the world with the wrong ideas about what progressive music education was. Now, I've been trying to come up with a name for this phenomenon for like 10 years. But then, just a couple weeks ago, I saw an article titled Performative Allyship is Deadly, Here's What to Do Instead by Holiday Phillips. My name is Holiday Phillips. I'm a sociologist and a writer and an anti-racism educator. So I've never heard the phrase performative allyship, which, again, probably highlights my own privilege, but it's so close to what I was talking about before, and I just had to reach out to Holiday to learn more. So I just started by asking her, what is performative allyship? So to understand performative allyship, it's first useful to understand what true allyship is. And I would define allyship as when someone from a non-marginalized group uses their privilege or their power to advocate for a marginalized group. And performative allyship is distinct in that it's when someone from a non-marginalized group professes support or solidarity in a way that either isn't helpful or actively harms that group. 
and it usually involves the ally receiving some kind of reward. Um, so in the example of social media, it's that virtual pat on the back that you get for being a good person or seeming quote unquote woke. Yeah, you get all the you get all the likes, yeah. you get all the emojis, and you've saved the world. You know, the the one of the claims in the article is that performative allyship is dangerous. And I think that's something that when people enter into these these spaces, they go, Well, I've done my good deed. I posted the black square. And I think they would be shocked to hear somebody suggest that this is problematic. And in, in what way is it dangerous or at least counterproductive? Sure. So I think the two things that were really important for me to get across in the article is that, first of all, saying that performative allyship is dangerous doesn't mean that there is no value in activism via social media. I mean, we saw in the case of Ahmed Arbery that the large-scale public outcry on social media did contribute, if not catalyze, the justice that was served or the some justice that was served. And then the second thing is to say that I do not excuse myself from this kind of behavior at all. You know, we all do this. But the reason that I say that it's dangerous is not because posting on social media in itself actively harms, but it lulls us into a false sense of security that that's enough. It gives us that check uh, on the box of I've done my bit, which actively stops us from looking for other ways to do the deeper work that is necessary to combat a system as complex as racism. Let's start with the ways in which we know someone's allyship is being performed. And just to be clear, I'm, I know that you can perform allyship and also be an ally at various, it's, you know, it's not a binary, you're in and out, you're doing things, and maybe you're not doing things certain times. But what are some signs that what somebody's doing perhaps is performative allyship? Sure. Yeah. And I think the the point that you make is really, really important. It's not that there are some performative allies and some true allies. We're all in and out of both all of the time, probably. Mm -hmm. So how do I spot performative allyship? So I have four things that set off my performative allyship spidey sense. So the first one is that in the medium of social media, the post is almost always super simple. It's a few words or an image like a black square or whatever the going hashtag is, it never engages with the complexity below the surface. It's just a tagline. The second one, which is super, super important, especially in the context of racism, is that it almost always expresses itself as outrage or disbelief. So it's, I can't believe the injustice. This is so awful. And that's not to say that the person posting it doesn't actually feel that but it demonstrates a real lack of understanding of the issue that it's engaging with because anyone who knows anything about racism knows that this is no longer surprising or shocking. This has been going on for hundreds of years. The third thing that I spot is that it almost always refuses to acknowledge any personal responsibility. So in trying to portray self as this woke person, it looks at some villain out there. So the terrible cop who did that, or, you know, the Amy Coopers of the world. It separates you, a good person, from them, a bad person. And the last and probably the most distressing one is that it's almost always met with praise or approval or admiration for the person expressing it. So it's the likes, it's the 
thank you for speaking up. You're so courageous. And that approval is its lifeblood. Without that approval, people would probably give up doing this kind of allyship. Okay, so you just have to be honest with yourself. Have you ever done any of the things that Holiday just described? Have you ever posted something online and felt like that was enough? Have you ever encouraged someone else's performance with a you're so brave or a, a thumbs up emoji or whatever? And look, as Holiday says, it's all very complicated and we're all guilty of some of it. But it's just something that we need to keep our eye on if we want to be a part of the solution. Okay, so what can and should someone do at this moment if they want to do their small part to impact positive change? Yes. So the first thing I would urge people to do is to stop and take a moment's pause before rushing to action. Because one of the most important things with allyship is that we all have a different part to play. You know, if you are a parent, you have the amazing opportunity of raising children who are anti-racist or not racist. If you are the CEO of a company, you have the amazing opportunity to build an inclusive culture. Um, if you are in law enforcement, well, the opportunities are obvious there. So we have to not think that there's a prescription that's right for everyone. The most important thing is to say, well, where do I have power and what can I do? But in a useful framework that I offer people to, to think about is kind of thinking about allyship in different categories. So the first one for me is, and the, definitely the place to start is within yourself. So we've all internalized this system of white superiority that we live in. So no matter who you are, or what color your skin is, there will be some internalized racism within you. So the first step is to look at that. Where does that live? How does that manifest? Do I cross the road when I see a black person walking towards me at night? Do I judge people by the color of their skin? When have I not spoken up when I've seen racism? We need to ask ourselves those questions first and foremost before we can start taking action because your own behavior is the place where you have the most power to influence change. And then the second category that I think of is in relationships. So with your family, we have a, a big issue here in the UK where um, there's huge anti-immigration sentiment. And most of that is rooted in racism. So the number of people who will hear a relative say, oh, all these immigrants coming and taking our jobs, are you calling that out? Are you having that conversation in an open and, and calm way or are you just turning the other cheek because it's easier? With your friends, when you hear people make racist jokes or jokes that are on the borderline, do you have the courage to step up and speak to them? So really looking at all of the places in your life or the relationships in your life and seeing where you can be an advocate for change. And then the third one I look at is money. So one of the greatest things you can do as a white person to support black, indigenous and people of color is to initiate your own program of reparations. So you might look at the products and the services that you're buying and see, are there alternatives that are black owned or made by people of color, indigenous people? And the fourth thing that I that I look at is your power as a citizen. So looking at, can I use my vote to really advocate for a more racially equal world? Most importantly, Holiday believes that you have to educate yourself 
about the history of racism in your country. Her article on performative allyship includes a link to a recommended reading list, which we will also link to in our show description and on our website. From my own experience, I will say that I know the more I educate myself, the more I learn about history and how we got here, and the more I absorb knowledge and art from black people, the more I see things that previously were completely missed or misunderstood by me. And those new perspectives, that knowledge can be very powerful. But it's important to remember the words of Robin D'Angelo. There is no neutral space when it comes to racism. Inaction is a form of action. So it's my responsibility to take this knowledge and actually do something with it. And this is not just about what we do right now, Brett. It's not about what we do today, tomorrow, this week. It's about what we do in the future. I recently discovered that the protests in Ferguson lasted for 400 days. I was there on day like two or three, and then I never went back. And that just sucks. That's bad. But I'm definitely not the only person who moved on. And we see this pattern repeat throughout history. We see the injustice, we demand change, and then eventually we just stop. We forget. And then nothing changes. And I said this to Holiday, and she pushed back on the premise. And I hope that what she said provides you with the spark you need to get started and the fuel you need to keep going. I think that we do ourselves, as a humanity, a real disservice in saying, oh, nothing's changed. Because when my dad was born in the UK, he's Caribbean, black man, his parents couldn't rent a flat because almost all of the windows had signs, no blacks, no dogs, no Irish. They had to find a landlord who was willing to rent to them a one bedroom for an eight person family. So I don't want to sit here and say everything's great, it's roses and and unicorns and fairies, but we have made progress and we are making progress. And I think the important thing for us to acknowledge about what's happening now is that this is a huge shift in evolution. We had one in the 60s, the civil rights movement, and we're having one now. So yes, the underlying conditions of white superiority and white supremacy are there and we still have to work on them. But things are changing and things are moving forward. In this particular instance, individual people are talking about, well, I need to do my own anti-racism work. I know that I'm part of the system. Three weeks ago, I didn't hear anyone talking about that. It was about, oh, the system out there. So, So I think we have to be hopeful. Huge thank you to Holiday Phillips for speaking with me. We'll definitely link to her article on performative allyship in the show notes and on our website. If you want to learn more about her and what she's up to, she recommends following her on Instagram where she posts thoughtful and important content every day. And those are my words, not hers. She's at Holiday Phillips. That's H-O-L-I-D-A-Y-P-H-I-L-L-I-P-S. And that's really for me because I don't know how to spell If you listen to this whole episode, then you should definitely go follow her now. Welcome to the credits, everyone.
A reminder that our fundraiser for justice is still happening. I imagine most of you heard our last episode, Pencil Something in Intention, and perhaps even the short update we put in the podcast feed afterward, which outlines the fundraiser. Thank you to those of you who have already donated. To those thinking about it, here is a reminder. You can be an ally with your wallet and get a pencil care package from Nick to support your own mindfulness, intentionality, and exploration. Go to our website, wherethersmoke.co, click on the Pencil Something In episode to see all the details in the show notes there. Speaking of Pencil Something In, thank you to Erica Robin for the signal boost on Twitter, and to Kaylin Cross, who sent Nick an email about the pencil segment on the show, saying it was the most perfect moment-specific piece you have done. Reminder to check out our website, wherethersmoke.co, for all show notes and links. And while you're there, be sure to get on our mailing list so you don't miss a thing. You can also find and follow Where There's Smoke on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. We are at ExploreWTS on all three platforms. Where There's Smoke is written, recorded, and produced by myself, Brett Gaida, and Nick Jaworski. Our theme song was written and recorded by Des McKinney and remixed by Nick. And speaking of music, Nick, who else was featured in this show? Well, today we had music from Blue Dot Sessions and Epidemic Music. That's it. So, yeah. Okay, enough talk. Are you ready to get down to business and do exactly what I tell you to do? Believe me, I'm ready. Then let's get to work. Thanks for listening. We love you. We'll see you next time.